you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. I showed my heart to the doctor. He said, I just have to quit. Then he wrote himself a prescription. Your name was mentioned in it. Then he locked himself in a library shelf with the details of our honeymoon. And I hear from the nurse that he has gotten much worse. and his practice is all in a ruin i heard of a saint who had loved you i studied all night in his school he taught me that the duty of lovers is to tarnish the golden rule and just when i was sure that his teachings were pure he drowned himself in the pool his body is gone but back here on the lawn his spirit continues to drool you are listening to one of us cannot be wrong a few selected verses from this poem by leonard cohen and now we move to today's episode of the ai ready healthcare where we talked with professor anant madhabushi about his journey from being a mikai focused researcher to a more focus about the downstream understanding of where this research can be most beneficial in his case with the oncologists and how that epiphany has changed his research career over time welcome all of our listeners to the third season of the podcast ai ready healthcare i am anirban together with henry my co-host it is really a wonderful day to talk about many different aspects of bringing ai to the real clinical world it is really my pleasure to have professor anant madhabushi here with us for this particular session where we will discuss a lot about his research what he is doing in short professor madhabushi is the donnell institute professor of biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve University and he also directs the university's center for computational imaging and personalized diagnostics he holds several secondary appointments in a range of departments i can't take all the names but it basically covers both the clinical side as well as the more engineering electrical computer science side of things apart from that professor madhavushi as all of you are quite aware is quite active in terms of 
bringing his research into the clinical world. He has co-founded two companies. He secured many, many patents, more than $50 million in terms of research grant. So in short, Professor Madhavushi is one of those rare academics who has a deep understanding of the translational problem of healthcare from the computational side to actually being out there in the clinical wild. So for the sake of simplicity, we will call him Anant for the rest of the episode. And welcome, Anand, to our podcast. Thank you very much, Anirban, for, um, for having me. Thank you, Henry. I'll just uh, add one additional clarification to your very kind introduction, is that apart from my affiliation with Case Western Reserve University, I'm also a research health scientist at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA. The VA, of course, is the Veterans Administration Medical Center that supports the health and well-being of our veteran population. So I'm very proud to have a part-time affiliated appointment helping to move further with the use of AI to help the health of our veteran population. Perfect. Thank you very much for the clarification. And also, welcome from my side to today's session. As this is our usual tradition in each session of AI Ready Healthcare podcast, I will just start with the very first question to you, Anand, about your becoming as a researcher. Can you give us a quick introduction about yourself in terms of how you became the researcher that you currently are? Thank you for that question, Henry. So I'll try to keep it short. So just by way of introduction, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in India. Growing up in India back in the 80s and the early 90s, you really had two options. Uh, you know, if, if you're growing up at that time, you, you either were going to become an engineer or you became a physician, right? And so... It turns out that, uh, you know, I wasn't that smart enough to make the grades for medical school. Uh, so I missed out. So the next best option was to become an engineer. And this was around the time in the early 90s when a number of biomedical engineering departments were coming up in India. So I was fortunate to be in the first tranche of biomedical engineering programs in India, in Mumbai. Uh, so I got my bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering. And during the course of my biomedical engineering program, I discovered that uh, I was really fascinated with uh, computer science, with image processing. So I, was, I got a real keen interest in, in both uh, programming uh, as well as image processing. And because I was doing biomedical engineering, I also got exposed to medical imaging. And I recall doing an internship in Mumbai at one of the premier hospitals. I realized I was fascinated with medical imaging. It wasn't quite obvious to me then, but I felt that there was an opportunity to somehow take what I was interested in, which was the image processing, the programming, and couple it with medical imaging. So it was sort of a little bit half-baked, but I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I also knew I wanted to study further. So I was fortunate to get into a master's program in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas. In 98, I went to Austin. I got my master's there. And during the course of my two years, I was very fortunate to work with you know, one of the giants in, in pattern recognition and computer vision, Dr. Jake Agarwal, um, at the University of Texas, Austin. So even though my research was not really focused on biomedical imaging, I did get to work quite deeply on computer vision, on pattern recognition. But you know, the biomedical engineer in me still wanted to work on medical image processing related problems. And so in 2000, I moved from the University of Texas to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I got, I was admitted into the PhD program in bioengineering. 
I had the good fortune there of working with Dimitri Metaxas. Dimitri now is at Rutgers University. So initially worked with Dimitri Metaxas, subsequently worked with Jay Udupa in the Department of Radiology, and started to really hone in and focus in around you know, computer vision, pattern recognition, but being applied to medical imaging problems, initially in the context of radiology. But around 2002, I had the good fortune as a graduate student to meet with a couple of pathologists at the University of Pennsylvania and got exposed to, for the first time, the area of digital pathology. And it was an interesting problem that I found myself working on in my spare time. And I had my day job where I was a graduate student working on my PhD thesis, but then I got this opportunity to work on this really exciting problem on co-registering and fusing radiology and pathology images for prostate cancer. And so I found that fascinating. And the Department of Pathology at Penn, you know, they, they were really excited. They saw this engineering student wanting to work on this problem. So they gave me a computer, they gave me some space to work on. So in the evenings, I'd basically go there to the hospital on the sixth floor in the hospital. And essentially I had a little bit of an office space and a computer and I'd actually sit and work there. So did some interesting work on, on co-registering radiology pathology. We mapped the annotations of cancer from the pathology images onto the radiology and created a ground truth mask for what was cancer on the MRI images. And, you know, I trained a bunch of machine learning classifiers to go in and identify cancer uh, on, on MRI. And, and around that time, I also had the good fortune of meeting with Jan Boshi, who's a computer vision machine learning researcher at Penn. And I took his class and got to know him quite well and, and actually really started to pick up machine learning in a deep way around that time. And in fact, the work that I was doing on prostate cancer, I used a whole bunch of machine learning methods, detected prostate cancer on MRI, and submitted a paper to Mikai as a graduate student, which was accepted as an oral presentation. This is back in 2003. And I remember presenting in, in Montreal and there was all this buzz around machine learning in medical imaging. And it seems quite amazing to think about it, but machine learning in medical imaging was quite new to the Mikai community then. And so I remember the work I presented was literally on five studies. It was on five patient studies. And today, if you think about it, the five patient studies won't even get you an abstract at, at a low tiered conference. But it was so exciting that you know somebody was applying machine learning and I was running Adaboost and Random Forest on this imaging data and showed it just with five cases that not only did it get accepted, it was an oral presentation of Mikai. And so I had the pleasure of presenting that work, finished up at Penn with my PhD and, and was lucky to get directly into a faculty position. So I was at Rutgers University. Because of the interest I picked up both in radiology as well as pathology, my lab focused on both aspects. So we were developing algorithms both for radiology as well as pathology. We developed tools initially in the context of prostate cancer, some of the early work in computational pathology, where we developed algorithms for prostate cancer detection and Gleason grading. We actually developed a whole bunch of those algorithms back in the mid-2000s. So a lot of the early patents in the space, particularly in the prostate cancer space, uh, you know, we, we put out then. Around that time, I also had the good fortune of meeting with Sridhar Ganesan, who was a breast cancer oncologist at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. And I think that was, to me, you know, looking back was one of the inflection points in my sort of evolution as a medical imaging AI scientist. Because up until that time, I think the focus largely around the use of AI, machine learning, 
in the medical imaging domain was very focused on diagnosis, right? So it was all computer-aided detection or computer-aided diagnosis where you know, you've got a lesion on a scan. Can you distinguish it as benign or malignant? And when I met Sridhar, the first time I started to think of the oncologist, that is the clinician, as the potential end user or consumer of the AI tools that we were developing. And that was sort of a, a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, wow, okay, this makes sense. So, you know, we think of the radiologist or the pathologist as a consumer, but hey, the oncologist really wants to know, you know, how could these tools help her or him make a better decision, right? You've got to manage treatment for cancer patients. And what I didn't know at that time until I met Sridhar was that 40% of the adult population in the United States will be diagnosed with some form of cancer. So yes, diagnosis, detection, early detection is very important, but you also have 40% or two out of five individuals in the US that will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. How do you manage that treatment? How do you identify what is the appropriate treatment? If you're giving treatment, you know, is the treatment going to work? Are you giving them a very aggressive treatment? And so that was sort of a, a critical point in time where I started to think very translationally, thinking of the oncologist as the driver for a lot of these tools. And so that was the time when we started to really think about AI, CAD, if you will, from a prognostics perspective, from a treatment response perspective, from the perspective of thinking of this, can we use AI with imaging to predict whether somebody's going to benefit from chemotherapy? Can they avoid chemotherapy because it's very aggressive? And that's sort of something that I really started to think about. And also because being an immigrant, being from India, I've always been very interested in global health, very interested in thinking about those parts of the world where you don't have access to advanced resources, where you don't have access to sophisticated technology, where you really have to think about how can you make the most out of the little that you have. And so I saw a huge opportunity, particularly with pathology, where if we could mine information from just pathology slide images, then could we figure out whether breast cancer patients needed chemotherapy or could they avoid chemotherapy? And there were tests in the US at the time, and in fact, they're still there, that could try to come up with a prediction of whether you needed chemotherapy or not. But those cost $4,000 per patient. If you think about that, you know, for large parts of the globe, you know, $4,000 for a test, for any test, to just tell you whether you need treatment or not is just not something that's feasible for the vast majority of people on the planet. And so our idea was, could we use pathology images to figure out whether there were patterns there that could tell you whether you needed the therapy or not? So it was an exciting idea. Unfortunately, it was also an idea that was ahead of its time. So we put out many grants, nothing got funded ultimately started a company called Ibris Inc. Uh, to basically move the technology forward. We were able to get some funding, develop the technology. Ultimately, the company got acquired by another entity, but we were able to sort of really push on this technology and today expanded this out into multiple different domains beyond breast cancer. And in fact, outside cancer as well. So not only are we looking at cancers like lung cancer, head and neck cancer, rectal cancer, brain tumors, but we moved it out and showed the utility in the context of kidney disease and cardiovascular disease as well. So huge implications for this. You know, anyway, in 2012, I came to give a talk in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University. I spoke about my research, realized very quickly that Case Western had a very unique medical ecosystem because you know, even though Cleveland is not one of the largest cities in the US, it does have probably more 
physicians per square foot than any other city, just because you've got VA hospital there, you've got university hospitals, you've got metro hospitals, and then of course, you've got the second largest medical enterprise in the world in the Cleveland Clinic. And so when I came and I saw that Case Western was sort of basically in the middle of this fantastic ecosystem, I got the opportunity to move. I moved and started the Center uh, for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics, moved with 12 people at that time back in 2012. And uh, very glad to report that the center is really prospered. Today, we're in 2021, we're more than 70 people in our group working in various different areas of applying AI machine learning to, like I said, oncology, cardiovascular disease, and multiple different areas. Thank you so much. So that's really, a, I guess, more than two decade long journey you have summarized in 10 minutes. That's wonderful. But what was really like, I can almost hear from how you are talking about is basically this one part where you talked about the inflection point where you realized that just algorithms for the sake of algorithms is one thing, but really if you know who will be using it, you can even think of the problems that you would be solving and you can focus on those critical problems. And I guess this is a common concern in general in the Mikai community where we develop a lot of algorithms, but they have little translational potential. So how do you really, let's say, see uh, Mikai moving forward into bringing more of these algorithms into the clinic? No, that's a great question, Arimran. Thank you for asking that. You know, one of the things that I've always emphasized and I've talked about this, I've written about it in papers as well, is multilinguality. So what does that mean? You know, as a bioengineer, I've been very fortunate to have been exposed right from my undergraduate days, not just on computer science, electrical engineering, engineering, but also anatomy, physiology, right? So I got exposed to that at an early phase where it just became part of my DNA, where, you know, when I thought about the problem, I wasn't thinking of it solely from a computational perspective, but also from a pathobiology perspective. But what it also instilled in me was the ability to listen and pick up concepts from other disciplines, right? And this is what I mean by multilinguality. One of the things that I feel that I've been very fortunate, privileged to do has been to work in a multidisciplinary team. So every paper, every grant has always involved clinicians, be they radiologists, pathologists, oncologists, cardiologists, nephrologists. So it's always has been part of the ecosystem within which we work. And what that has allowed me to do has been to really pick up concepts across a plurality of disciplines, right? So to me, the greatest compliment is when I give a talk somewhere and somebody comes to me and says, uh, so uh, which hospital are you a pathologist at? To me, that's the biggest compliment, right? Because somebody's actually mistaken me for a pathologist. That means I've picked up enough concepts and been able to masquerade as a pathologist. To me, that's a compliment. And so I think that when you work very closely with clinicians and pathologists, radiologists, and listening to what their problems are, then I think inherently you start to think about those particular problems that need working on, where there is an unmet clinical need. There's a second piece as well that I will put out there, which I think in our group, we think of quite a bit about, right? And I think you made a great point, Arimban, you know, think about that translational piece. You know, the algorithms are fine, but you think of the translational piece. I will actually argue, I'll take it to the next level. I will say that when you think translationally, 
then it also has an impact and an influence on the algorithmic development. Because I gave you the example where we work very closely with oncologists. If you think of the diagnostic problem where you know, there's a lot of deep learning algorithms for you know, Viz.ai came out with that algorithm for triaging CT scans for stroke or hemorrhage. And then, of course, you reference Page AI's algorithm that just got FDA approval for prostate cancer detection, which is great. But when you get to the point where you are actually talking about treatment management, you have an oncologist who then has to decide based of the predictions that the algorithm is making, whether or not they should get treatment A or treatment B. Now, those are very high stakes decisions. Cynthia Rudin from Duke University had a beautiful paper you know, at NIPS and then subsequently Nature Machine Intelligence on you know, stop trusting the black box for high stakes decisions. And you know, to a large extent, we've really taken that to heart because, because I work with so many oncologists, they've told me flat out, look, you know, if I have to decide, if I have to tell a patient, we're not going to give you chemotherapy and they're going to ask me why. And I cannot tell them because my deep learning algorithm told me to not give you chemotherapy, right? That is never going to fly. And so we've been very deliberate about how we've gone about developing our algorithms. I would say that to a large extent over the last half a decade or so, our algorithmic approach has evolved where perhaps it's a little less on the machine learning aspect and more about patterns. So my initial training on pattern recognition has started to focus a lot more on the approaches that we're developing. In other words, what we're discovering is that if you look at biology, if you look at the medical imaging domain, if you look at pathology, there's so much rich information that's there. And to some extent, if you think of how you know, a UNET works or CNN works, it feels like we're really missing out on the opportunity to take advantage of hundreds of years of domain knowledge that radiologists, pathologists have gleaned from looking at these scans. I mean, pathologists have been looking at slides under a microscope for over 100 years. There's so much brain trust there. Right? There's so much knowledge there. And so what our group has been doing, I'd say over the last decade or so, has been to very deliberately focus on trying to unlock some of these patterns, right? So you can use a machine learning, but let's use interpretable interpretations. And what I mean by interpretable is not, you know, using your know, saliency maps or visual attention maps. Now, I mean, I'm not sort of using interpretability in that sense. I'm talking about actual patterns that relate to our understanding of the pathobiology of the disease. As one example, you know, a lot of work we're doing is in lung cancer. And the breakthrough that we made quite recently was the fact that if you look at the vasculature associated with nodules in the context of lung on CT scans, that malignant nodules tend to have a very twisted vasculature. If you look at benign nodules, they're a much smoother vasculature. And so what we were able to do was to essentially use a fractal idea to capture the twistedness of the vessels associated with the nodule, and therefore were able to identify which nodules were likely to be malignant, that is, they had more twisted vasculature, which nodules were less likely to be malignant because they had a much smoother vasculature. And in fact, building on that idea, we've now shown in extensive number of publications that those patterns are also useful in predicting response to therapy. They're also useful in predicting outcome. Now, so this is something that people can relate to, right? An oncologist relates to that because if you think of the notion of angiogenesis, right? You think about how these tumors are growing, that the more aggressive tumors are invoking, soliciting a more aggressive angiogenic development compared to maybe less aggressive tumors. 
And so here we're latching on to something that we know about the domain, about the pathobiology of the disease. You know, you could call it handcrafted approaches, feature engineering, but inspired by the domain, right, in a very, very real way. And so this has been something that we've been focusing on, with a little less so on the machine learning aspect. And so that has also influenced, I think, a lot of how we do it, because we're thinking of who the end user is, who is the consumer of this technology. I think that this is maybe something that we can bring into the Mikai community more aggressively. You know, uh, Dr. Tanvir uh, Mahmood, uh, Hyatt Greenspan, myself have organized a workshop, you know, at Mikai for over a decade now on clinical decision support. And one of the things that we do in that workshop is really bring Mikai scientists, but also clinicians to talk about and have those discussions so that, you know, the computer scientists are not working in a silo, that they have to understand who the end user is, who the consumer is, why are you focusing on these problems? Are these the real problems that you should be working on? Segmentation, registration, 100% agree, these are important problems. But I think for us as a Mikai community, we have to think about what are the clinical problems that our clinical consumers are really passionate about, right? You can keep, let's be honest, right? Is Do we really need another registration algorithm? Do we need another segmentation algorithm? I'm not saying that these are not important. None of these algorithms are perfect. We want to continue to work on it. But I would argue that in many cases, the segmentation registration is good enough to get us to the point where we can start to ask subsequent questions about treatment response, about benefit of therapy, really critical questions that can impact clinical care downstream. And I would argue that a lot of these algorithms in upstream algorithms are good enough for us to start to address and tackle the more challenging questions downstream. So my two cents would be, I think, the more we can get the Mikai computer science community to work and talk and converse with the clinical community, the more I think we'll start to see convergence start to happen. And that's, I think, when the magic will really happen. Thank you so much. I think you just brought in so many important aspects that I think in during our Many of our previous episodes, we discussed about this again and again. One of these is, of course, that the interpretability is not saliency maps, <laughs> but also about the problems that are worth really solving versus the problems that are easy to solve. But I guess one follow-up sort of questions when I was thinking about how you talked about your, let's say, journey, you were always like, pain during your grad studies and even now is a highly vibrant space. Rutgers, I can imagine New Jersey is similar. Now, TS Western, you said you have chosen for this unique environment of cross-pollination. That's not often, I guess, the case for most of the Mikai researchers. They are computer scientists who are sitting in computer science departments. Maybe their boss, their professor has some focus, but not necessarily very close to the clinicians. Often they don't even talk to clinicians more than once per year. So how do you think we can really incentivize these sort of grad students into doing the research, the bigger questions that you are trying to solve? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I think that I'm very, very privileged I'd like to think that my students are very fortunate. That was actually one of the reasons I came to Case Western. Big part of it was my students, my trainees, to to have them take advantage of that ecosystem where they could talk to whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, you know, surgeons, radiologists, pathologists. And I 100% agree that a lot of places do not have that luxury. Now, one of the things that I do tell my trainees and students all the time is you have to read. 
you have to read extensively and you have to read outside your comfort zone and one of the things that we do you know on a weekly basis every friday at noon we have been hosting for the last 15 years a journal club meeting and at that journal club meeting you know sure we'll talk about the greatest and latest in deep learning but then every other week we'll talk about tumor hypoxia immunotherapies we'll talk about diverse subjects and one of the things i tell my students and trainees all the time is there is a huge amount of literature out there and whatever domain you're working on you want to know that you want to own that space to the point where i say if you are having a conversation you want to be able to pass off as you know a radiologist or a pathologist or an oncologist and so i think that maybe even if you don't have access to the physicians to be able to have the face to face conversations i think you can still learn a great deal just by reading because there is so much literature out there let's say you're working on trying to develop an algorithm for predicting response to immunotherapy well do you know how pd1 pdl1 checkpoint blockade works it is incumbent on you to understand the domain to understand not just you know this is a ct scan and i went and analyzed it and now i can predict response to immunotherapy no well what does response mean what exactly does that mean right i mean it's complicated none of this is easy when you talk about predicting response to therapy with artificial intelligence well first you understand that response is not a binary variable it doesn't mean response no response typically the way we think about response is actually their progression of disease is their stable disease is their complete response is their partial response is there no response in fact now in the age of immunotherapy there is pseudo progression where sometimes it looks like the tumor is progressing but it's not progressing i think that you have to understand not just the technical piece but the bigger picture really understanding that and a lot of that literature exists so you now i constantly push my students and trainees and deliberately pick out papers for journal club meetings that's coming from the oncology literature i mean we read about clinical trials and understand you know did these clinical trials work did they not work why did they not work you know just one example we have a lot of work going on in the context of head and neck cancer and there was a recent high profile paper that came out in the journal of clinical oncology around a clinical trial which was uh, hno02 right and hno02 was a study where they were looking at oropharyngeal carcinomas head and neck cancers where the goal was to try to reduce therapy so the goal was could we figure out if we reduce the amount of radiation that was being given to head and neck cancer patients could we see benefit now the problem was they just took what were called low and intermediate risk patients based of clinical pathologic factors and did a dose reduction in those patients and what they found was that compared to patients who did not get the dose reduction these patients tended to have more failure local failure right they tended to have more local failure and so we discussed this paper in our journal club and my question to them was okay so what does that mean does that mean it's a failure or is it the fact that they did not use a good way of selecting which subset of patients were truly going to benefit from deintensification and so it's a great point where to get the students the trainees to think about okay here's a clinical problem where if they had a good ai algorithm to identify which patients were truly going to benefit from deintensification that trial would have been positive could have been successful this is where reading the clinical literature makes the students makes the trainees really think about okay this is where 
my AI could be beneficial. This is where it could really be useful. And so that kind of clinical context, I think, is really important. And I think that's something that, to a large extent, we can start to develop ourselves by just reading about the domain, reading about clinical trials that are coming out. One of the things I do is I'm on Twitter because I like to follow oncologists. I follow cardiologists. I want to see what are the clinical trials coming out? What are the FDA approvals coming out? What is happening in the different spaces? Just keeping track of the literature. This is really important to give you the context that you need. I was wondering a bit about cases which are usually diagnosed by surgeons or um, by radiologists by using their personal intuition, which comes from their practice knowledge, which might not be noted down in the papers or anywhere else. It's just something that if you ask a radiologist if they can do a certain diagnosis on an image and they say, um, yes, it's this or that kind of case. Uh, so how would you deal with these features that actually come from the intuition? That's a good question. I think that we've had those conversations before with some of our radiologists. I think that if you spend enough time in a room where you're talking to each other, ultimately you can, I think, break down the intuition. You can get down and start to model exactly where and how they're getting to their particular interpretation. You know, maybe there was something there that, you know, they noticed, maybe it was the microenvironment, maybe it was the history, right? The patient history, you know, one of the jokes, and again, I think this is okay to say since I'm South Asian, is that when you're looking at a CT scan and you see a nodule on the CT scan, and if you find out that the patient is from India or is of South Asian extraction, you immediately go to a TB diagnosis, right? Rather than think of it as lung cancer, because of course, TB is endemic to India. But intuition really, at the end of the day, is not some sort of sixth sense. It's really rooted ultimately in training, ultimately in knowledge. And I think that is very valuable for us as Mikai scientists to be aware of that, you know, looking at things like ethnicity, right? Or where the patient has been brought up, geographical factors can play a role. Now, radiologists may not be able to articulate that. They may not necessarily be thinking about it and therefore be able to put it in those specific terms. But one of the things I've realized working in the area of lung cancer diagnosis is that if you grew up in Ohio, in the Ohio River Valley area, the chances of you finding a nodule on a chest CT scan is about one in two. 98, 99% of the time, it's completely benign. So the reason it shows up is because this area, Ohio, is endemic to histoplasmosis, which is a fungal infection. And that fungal infection causes granulomas. And granulomas look very similar to adenocarcinomas. So if you're a computer scientist and you're looking at this, you look at it as just, okay, granuloma, adenocarcinoma, I want to build a unit and I've got 100 patients, granulomas, 100 adenocarcinomas, I put it in, I train my network, and you know, I get 91% AUC, and you report on the validation set, you report on the test set, and you're done. But that really ignores context, right? And I think intuition is context. That's really fundamentally what it is, right? Understanding the context, is this, where is this patient from? And one of the things that we've been doing quite a bit in our group has been to deliberately look at this question of population-based models. I think there's been a lot of talk around you know, AI and bias, the lack of equity in AI. You know, we've heard about the stories about AI for skin cancer detection not working on darker skin compared to lighter skin. 
And in our own group, we published a paper last year in clinical cancer research where we looked at black men and white men with prostate cancer of pathology images and found that AI was able to identify differences in the stroma between black men and white men with prostate cancer. So there were differences in the morphology and the signature of prostate cancer between black men and white men. And that, in turn, allowed us to create population-based models specifically geared towards black men. And then we showed that when you took that population-specific model, it worked much better in black men compared to a population-agnostic model. Again, context is important. And appreciating the fact that there might be differences at a morphologic, at a molecular level between black men and white men with prostate cancer is important because that means we need to have tailor-made models for particular populations, right? We're all different and call it context, call it intuition, but we have a responsibility, I think, as people who are working in this field to think about that, think about different populations and explicitly model those differences as we think about constructing these models, as opposed to stepping back and saying, okay, I've got my data, I'm going to run it through my ResNet or UNet architecture, and I'll get an outcome, and then I'll write a paper about it. We're missing the bigger theme here, missing the bigger picture. And I think this is something that, as computer scientists, we need to be more deliberate about, more purposeful about, and really think about these things deeply as we start to develop our algorithms. I can't really comment much about the general approach, but when you are talking about the healthcare, I guess one basic assumption of healthcare is always about leaning towards efficiency, right? Because it's always underfunded. You have to do more with less. And if you need to do efficient processing, then you have to batch in certain ways. And these sort of assumptions that you are talking about, they were probably batches that are created not with any malicious intent per se, but it's just for the sake of efficiency. Now, we can't always portray everything in one light. There are always gray zones. And I think you really commented that in a very proper fashion. But I guess it sort of brings the question towards, previously you talked about the fact that you are developing more of interpretable by design algorithms versus the typical AI algorithms like UNIT, for example, they have this problem of failure, robustness when the basic imaging modality changes, for example. So when it really comes to the clinical implications and the clinician's belief in technologies when such failure happens, what do you think would be the way to going forward? That's a great question, Anirban. So I think I guess my response is that we just have to be more deliberate and we have to be more purposeful. So I understand the concept of efficiency, but even as we develop these tools, I think what we have to do is to recognize the limitations of the approach and we have to recognize the qualifications on the populations that we have analyzed our data on. So I understand okay, you're a student, you're trying to publish a paper, you want to get into a Mikai, you know, you're thinking about your PhD and okay, I get it. But I think even then as a student, recognizing the limitations of your study, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that, you know, maybe since we're talking about Mikai, one thing that we could do a better job is to make sure that we convey, we provide as technical chairs, we provide more information or context to our reviewers. You know, when you're reviewing the paper, please be thinking about these facts, the diversity of the population. 
And it's okay if it's not diverse, but at least being aware of that, I think is really important. And the more we can communicate this to our reviewers, the more we can start to see sort of change happen. Uh, it has been happening, right? It has been happening. We're seeing you know, more papers now in Nikai that are focusing on more clinically relevant problems than before. I think that, you know, it used to be that, you know, it was only just, uh, you know, <laughs> the running joke has always been that the Mikai papers were always the ones that were at ICCV or CVPR. And, you know, you took those algorithms and you applied it to a brain imaging data set and, you know, you had the Mikai papers. But I think it's good to see now that we're starting to see a lot more application focused translational questions that are being posed. And I think we want that to continue, but at the same time, I think we want our reviewers to be thinking about other criteria, such as bias, such as you know population diversity, and just at least having that as part of the thought process as they're reviewing these papers, right? I think that is going to be critical. So we, we sort of almost owe it to our community, to educate our community, to educate our authors, but also our reviewers as they're reviewing our papers. Do you maybe have an idea for a concrete measure to spark that kind of mindset in the community and to basically to educate the reviewers about it? Well, I think that one simple thing could be the, the program chair that prior to the reviewing, we uh, we codify that, right? I mean, I think that that could be maybe one of the criteria. You've got a checklist of things that we ask our reviewers to look at. This could be one of the things that that's in there, right? So have the authors of the paper talked about their particular population? And it's no different from what's happening in terms of reviewing of grants. Now, in the United States, with the National Institute of Health, which is one of the largest funder of biomedical research in the United States, the NIH has very you know, particular criteria that specifically have the reviewers focus on biological variables. You have to talk about race. You have to talk about how much the proposal look at race, look at sex. And unless those are explicitly called out, you can ding those proposals because they have not paid attention to those particular attributes. By the same token, I think encoding that into the rubric of what the reviewers need to be looking for as they review the Mikai paper could be a way forward. Right? That's one example. But I think it could be something that you know, we start to incorporate. I think that the Mikai community, the Mikai society could say that, well, for next year, we are going to be very deliberate about this. If you've got an algorithm that you're running, you need to tell us what is the diversity of the population. Otherwise, we're going to penalize you for that if you don't explicitly have this information. So maybe one last question as we are moving towards the end of the podcast session. We basically talked a lot more about the pathology and the oncology's perspective to the images, but you are also looking at radiology and in particular radiomics features, which is, I guess, not as often discussed in the Mikhai context, but at the same time, radiologists rely a lot more on the radiomics features to understand the cancer. So can you give us a little bit of your perspective of how AI algorithms can come in and help out in those cases? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's great that you mentioned it, uh, Nirban. So literally just this morning, we had a perspective article we just published in Nature Review's uh, Clinical Oncology, where we talked about the role of artificial intelligence and radiomics for predicting response to cancer therapies, cancer outcome. And I think more and more, as I mentioned, with so many people being diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime, there's a real question about 
appropriate therapies to administer to these patients and what role AI could play there. But the other piece of this is monitoring therapeutic response, right? So the problem right now, and I think again, just to sort of create a little bit of a storm in a teacup, one of the areas that, you know, we talked about sort of this tension between, you know, radiomics and deep learning, there's always a debate about, you know, handcrafted features versus unsupervised feature generation. And that's all well and good when you talk about prediction. But one of the things that we also need to recognize is that when you have a patient on a particular therapy, the clinician is trying to monitor treatment response. The clinician wants to try to figure out, is this patient responding to a particular therapy or not? Now, if you look at immunotherapy as one example, which is the flavor du jour for therapies in the cancer space, patients will get the immunotherapy administered every couple of months and immediately following the therapy, they get a CT scan. So literally about every two, three months, they're getting a CT scan. And radiologists currently look at that, oncologists look at that, try to figure out is the treatment working or not. But like I said, you know, because of problems like pseudoprogression, where sometimes it looks like the tumor is growing, when it's actually reacting to the tumor, reacting to the therapy favorably, clinicians might sometimes cut off the therapy because it looks like the tumor is increasing in size rather than shrinking in size. And because of that, we need better ways in which we can monitor treatment response beyond just the size of the tumor. And that's where I feel radiomics can play a significant role. With the work we're doing on the vessel tortuosity, which is an example of a feature that actually could be used to monitor treatment response. And coming back to what I said about the little storm on the teacup, it's a challenge when you look at deep learning. Because deep learning, as far as I can tell, could be very useful upfront to predict whether the patient is going to respond or not. But how do you use deep learning to monitor response? Because you're getting these abstract features. So what does it mean to take a delta difference of abstract features, right? You can't say, well, you know, this is my unit at time zero and my unit at, you know, two months out, and now I'm taking a difference of my unit representation. It doesn't mean anything. But you could look at the difference in the tortuosity of the vessels between the baseline and two months out and talk about how the vessel tortuosity is increased or decreased. And so I think, again, the interpretable features become very useful, very critical for monitoring response. And I think that that is an area that perhaps has not seen a lot of traction, but I do hope that we as a community will start to focus on this particular area because I think there's a huge unmet need. And it also drives home another important point, which is being aware of what your end user wants. And very often, clinicians, radiologists are not just looking for response prediction. That's what we're all focused on. Yeah, we can predict response. We can predict overall survival in these patients. Well, the oncologist says, I don't care about overall survival. Overall survival is all well and good, but that's not critical. What I'm more interested in right now is can you predict response? Can you tell me how much has a tumor changed? I've given the treatment, has the tumor grown? I mean, right now it looks to me on the CT scan like it's grown. Has it truly grown? I want to monitor change, but that's not what a lot of us are working on. We're busy working on what we think is the holy grail, which is to be able to predict outcome or response at baseline. But that's not what the clinical reality is, right? These patients are coming and getting a scan every two months. And looking at those longitudinal changes is perhaps what we need to be focusing on, what we need to be working on. All right. As we are moving towards the end of our session, first of all, I want to thank you very much for our discussion. I really enjoyed it. And I want to close with one final question to you, which is also something that we often have in our sessions here at AI Ready Healthcare Podcast. So imagine a world where you don't have any restrictions in your research, where you have infinite money and 
infinite time. What would you be focusing on in your research? Infinite money, infinite resources, what would I be doing? I think I'm spending a lot of time right now just thinking about impact. And if I had, you know, like I said, infinite time, infinite resources, I would really be focused on how could we take these technologies. I think we have a lot of really powerful technologies. But what we have not yet figured out is how to really put it into practice. I would actually spend a lot of my time focusing on that piece, right? And it's not something that as a Mikai community, we think about a lot. We, we focus on the algorithms, but pay a little less attention to how it fits into the bigger context. I would say that would be where my major focus would be. And if I were to clarify that further, I would say that I would spend more of my time with the infinite money, the infinite resources, focusing on deployment, particularly in low middle income countries, because I think that's where there's a real potential for impact. And we're, I'm happy to report we're doing that. We don't have the infinite resources, but we are working through an NCI U54 grant with Uganda and Tanzania. We're trying to move our technologies for lung cancer screening in the HIV positive uh, patient population. And similarly, also working with the Tata Cancer Center in Mumbai, looking at uh, stratification of oral cancers, one of the largest, uh, most commonly diagnosed cancers in India. Those are a couple of examples of where we are working to try to translate these technologies to really impact patients in LMICs. So, you know, to me at this stage, I think it's about impact. I mean, we've got to think about impact. It's great to have another paper and it's great to have another line on your CV, but I think the true testimony of what you're doing, your legacy, if you will, is going to be about what impact have you made to your community and to your citizens of the world. So that's where I would spend most of my time. Thank you so much, Anant. So in a way, we are quite happy in the Mikai society that you don't have so much resource that you can totally abandon Mikai and think about implementation science. We are really glad to have you around in Mikai and we hope it stays like that for the coming decades. But on that note, really looking forward to see how your research moves from the developed world to the more developing world and how many people in our world can really reap benefit from the technology that you are developing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers.